Welcome to the Ritual House Podcast, a show about the rituals we practice, the new ones we create, and the many ways rituals help us live deeper, more meaningful, and more connected lives. I'm your host, Tova Leibovic Douglas, and allow me to be the first one to say, welcome home. Hey everyone, welcome back and happy new year. I'm sure you're in that beginning of the new year grind or joy. I don't know, depending on how you look at it. I always find the beginning of the new year to be this opportunity to do the things that I really want to do routine wise, health wise. And so this week always feels I don't know, um, extra productive, but in a really positive way. I have been thinking a lot about this concept that uh, one of my teachers in rabbinical school laid out at some point. He said, you know, in all honesty, I've noticed that there are two camps and ways of being a rabbi. One could be in the camp of being a particularist And one could be in the camp of being a universalist. So what does that really mean? Well, particularism is really just having the lens and the focus for one's particular identity, belief systems, spiritual tradition, rituals, you name it. And a universalist is um, one who has a lens that is universal, meaning there is an expansiveness. I remember that question being asked and the question being, how do you identify? And I had a really hard time answering it because I felt like I was both. I'm actually going back to myself 10 years ago and wishing that I could have just said, wait, I'm a both and. I come by that honestly. And through this podcast, I'm actually redefining who I am. And it's a real gift. This episode was so much fun. My guest, Casper, is amazing. You're going to get to know all about him in a minute. I left with a sense of there is something shifting in religion, in spirituality, and we are all living through that. Here we go. Casper Turkile. Welcome, listeners. We're here with Casper Turkile, and I'm going to do a formal introduction of him so you get to know the amazingness and what he is bringing to the table for this important conversation. Casper Turkile is the author of The Power of Ritual. He is the co-founder of The Nearness Sacred Design Lab and the podcast Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. His work has been featured in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, Vice, and he has been on NPR. He has spoke on community trends, rituals, and emerging spirituality at the Aspen Ideas Festival, the Cons Lions Festival, Stanford University, and numerous religious institutions. I have many things to say about Casper, and I don't even know him. This is kind of our first real conversation. But what I will say is that When I was a rabbinical student, towards the beginning of rabbinical school, I believe, How We Gather, which is something he published, came out, and I brought it to my rabbinical school, and I said, I don't know who these people are, but 
they are exactly who I want to be, who I want to meet. These are the people we need to be talking to. And my colleagues who I really love in that moment were really excited about a debate that we were having in rabbinic literature. Like they were really into it. And they were like, Tova, stop being so woo-woo on everything. Stop it, stop it, stop it. And from that moment of reading how how we gather, I just knew that Casper was someone to meet, someone to know, because he has been at the forefront of really this intersection of spirituality and humanity. And he's been a leader in that with his book and many other ways that he's done it. So I'm I'm just really excited to meet you, Casper, and have your wisdom here on the Ritual House podcast. Thank you for being uh, here. Well, thank you so much. And I want to shout out my co-creator on the How We Gather project, Angie Thurston, because we, we really were a, a double yes. act. And it was funny. I, I recently looked back at our emails and uh, exactly 10 years ago from when we were recording this podcast, Angie and I created a very, <laughs> very flop failed, uh, like winter solstice ritual. So it just goes to show you can start a collaboration and it be a total failure and end up with something that works. So, uh, but I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Of course. But how could a winter solstice ritual fail? Like what, what did you, what did you do to make a winter solstice ritual fail? I don't want to put all the details out in public, but I, <laughs> okay. mostly, mostly it was the first time I was in ritual leadership. And so I didn't appreciate the power of like roles and like ritual leadership and how people project on you. So that's a very, yeah. Uh, oh yeah. It was, it was my first year of divinity school. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, the first question I love to ask people is, do you have an earliest memory of ritual of tiny Casper walk us through where you are, what that is. I was very lucky. I, I grew up in a Dutch family living in England. So both my parents were from Holland, but I was born and raised in the UK. And so we had a lot of rituals just from our, my, my kind of family life of, of Dutch traditions, including, you know, particular ways of celebrating a birthday, which included a chair that was decorated and the Dutch flag that hang, hung over our bed when we woke up on our, our birthday morning and a little present under your pillow and, um, you know, all mm. sorts of kind of ways of, of keeping, I guess, some family traditions alive. But I also went to a Waldorf school as a child. And so even mm. though we weren't religious in any way, like I didn't know anyone who went to church and my parents and my grandparents weren't religious, like religion was really absent. But as a Waldorf kid, you know, the school system is very much about the holistic development of the child. So there's lots of time in nature and lots of singing and languages and not a lot of science. And I couldn't spell when I changed schools when I was like <laughs> nine or 10. So, you know, you win some, you lose some, but it, it gave this great gift of, of ritual. And so a lot of the the rituals I associate with my early childhood are ones that are associated with particular times of year. So, um, you know, just this past Sunday, I was folding waxed paper to make a star for my window because that's what you do in, you know, Advent time and the lead up to Christmas or mm. it was my birthday. So my husband has learned that he has to hang up the Dutch flag and now also the British flag <laughs> in our apartment in Brooklyn, because if those flags are hanging, then it's not my birthday. So, um, mm. you know, there's, there's all sorts of those memories that are wrapped up in my childhood, but not just my childhood, like they really continue to this day. That's amazing. I love that. I love rituals that are not 
religious in orientation, but that are still religious in, I mean, religious maybe isn't the right word, but so important that they are like a religious experience in some way where you're like, no, I I need that flag. Like, (laughs) I need it. Like, that is part of it. That is the way. Yeah. And I actually think religious is a great word because one of the big discoveries for me was how contentious that word is in in the in the academy kind of how scholars debate what religion is there's really not a fixed definition despite how we how much we use it in public language and and particularly the reframe for me from religion being about what you believe which is a very christian or even protestant way of understanding what religion is to religion being about what you practice and i think a jewish use case is a great example of that right because it's about following Jewish law, um, or in Buddhism, you know, it's about a particular practice, or it might be about ancestor worship or fulfilling certain rituals and duties. And so when you look beyond the kind of Christian worldview, religion is way more about what you do than, than you know, who you think your Lord and Savior is. And so mm. for me, it's been such a freedom to like actually claim that word and say, yeah, you know, my birthday ritual and the kind of lead up to wintertime. And, you know, that there's certainly elements there that connect to the cultural context that I was familiar with, which is a, a Christian one. But like, I, I am going to claim that word religious because that that is how I feel about it. Right. And maybe there's a way to rebrand religion today in some way, which I think you're, Someone you're needs working. To do that. Yeah. You're working on. I'm trying to do my part. Right. We're all doing it in different ways. We're like, That's right. we gotta change the way because it's probably not working for for many. I mean, it works for some, for sure. For sure. And and you know, as I said, I didn't grow up with that capital religious or congregational membership. And certainly, as a gay kid, I was like, screw you, religion. You know, it was either irrelevant right. to me or it was cruel. And so. I was very, not just like atheist, I was like anti-religion. And in so many ways, I think- Oh, interesting. Yeah, like for sure, you know, it was an untrustworthy, dangerous public institution. And again, I'm, I'm speaking specifically about the British context here and, and the Church of England as, you know, not just being a religious denomination, it's the state church. And so right. to have, you know, bishops in the House of Lords and to have- these kind of pulpits throughout the country and the head of state also being the head of the church, it asks very different moral questions than just, you know, one institution among many. But, uh, you know, I also saw beautiful examples. One of my favorites at the time of year when we're recording this is that the Christmas carol service that is broadcast from King's College Chapel in, in Cambridge. And yeah. I wrote to the dean a few years ago, literally, I was so amazed by what they'd done because this is a, a traditional service where there's lots of carols and then there's reading from the Christian scriptures, really just telling the story of, of the birth of Jesus. And it, you have often nine different readers. And it struck me that here was this you know, Christian institution, Christian ritual, celebrated on the public broadcasters on Christmas Eve. And yet the readers that they had chosen were a Muslim woman wearing hijab, a a German person who was reading about poetry from the First World War. It was, you know, a Black American woman. Like, it was so skillfully, like, within this kind of Christian structure, they had had created a sort of square that, if it wasn't a public square, it was certainly a very actively invitational square to say, like, this ritual may not be for you in terms of how you think about God, but it might be part of this time of year for you too. And we want to make you feel welcome. And so I I was just, I was so moved by that. I was like, yeah, there are ways in which you can shift that narrative and claim that kind of connection to the divine for everyone. 
Yeah, I love that because it's, you know, it's not burning it all down. It's like almost like a layering on top mm. of it, you know, mm. and that feels that feels quite spiritual, actually, when you when you think about that, like in its essence and component. Totally. Yeah, my friend Jim Bailey talks about composting religion, right? So it's, mm. it's mm-hmm. not that it's, yeah, it has to be burned down, but it but some things have to die for new things to be born. And, and that's very much what I'm interested in. Are you interested in the the death process? <laughs> Are you interested in the resurrection? Like, no, I actually asked that, you know, yeah. I, I'm not kidding. Yeah. I was just with, on my kid's field trip. I'm going to read you something. Yeah. Um, it was in the Central Library, downtown L.A. And there was this quote, and it was so stark. Mm. In order to rise from its own ashes, a phoenix first must burn. Mm. It's like so in your face. Like we know that, right? You know, but it must burn. Yeah. (laughs) Where do you, where's your orientation with that as a spirit? Do you call yourself a spiritual leader? Would you call, I I think of you as such. Do you call your, I don't want to, I don't want to place labels. I will accept that linguistic invitation. I, I, you know, I I think to to ignore or to, to reject that, would be insincere because, uh, yes, I, I lead projects and they are spiritual in nature. And so, you know, that is spiritual leadership. I, you know, it's a beautiful question. I am so much more comfortable with creation than destruction. I'm very much someone who loves the new. So I, I'm good at making things and bringing people and ideas and, and resources together to kind of make something happen. But I really admire, you know, friends of mine who went into chaplaincy where they're working with people who are dying, right? They're working in hospice or, or people who go into ministry or congregational leadership in contexts where they know those congregations are not going to grow. They probably are going to shrink and, and probably will close at some point. Mm. Uh, I, I find that commitment to patience and gentleness really remarkable. One of my favorite examples of this are women religious. So these are Catholic nuns, women who, you know, 200 years ago, there were 400,000 Catholic nuns in the United States. They ran every Catholic school and healthcare system that you could find. And now there's fewer than 10% of that still alive and the average age is somewhere in the 70s. So it's, you know, that is a an example of something that is burning. And, And many of the sisters would say it has burnt. Like it's, it's not like there's going to be a revival or some sort of renewal. Like they are managing the end. They're selling the buildings. They're handing over, mm. you know, making sure that there's enough money in the pot to look after the last sisters who will be living. Um, and so it's a very stark and kind of, yes, mm. sad ending. But the way they talk about it is not a, a, a mission that's failed, but a mission that's been completed. And the question that they ask is not how can we revive ourselves? But how can we ensure that the the charism, which is one of my favorite words that I've learned in, in working with them. Why don't you define yeah. that for us? So ca- ca- charism is like, and now I'm going to butcher it. So forgive me if I don't do a good <laughs> job of it. But the way I understand charism is that it's the particular radical response to the gospel um, of that community. So if you mm. think of it in the Christian context, right, the, the, the story of Jesus, what is the particular element or virtue or, or some loving response to that that calls you forth? So for, for some sisters, it's about education or, or, right. or a care for the sick, or it might be tending to the outsider, the refugee, the marginalized, you know, it, or it might be about um, prayer. 
right? Particular practice. So there's, there's something from that story, from that tradition that resonates with you. And that's kind of the gift that you have to give. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the sisters of mercy, of course, are about mercy. The, the sisters of right. St. Joseph are about, I believe, unity. Um, mm-hmm. and so what, when they think about the decline and the burning of the, of the phoenix that they're in, they're looking at where does that charism live beyond this particular institutional expression. So yes, it might be the end of this particular order of sisters, but right. people striving and creating unity in the world is going to continue. And so yeah. how, how can we help and support those who are coming next? And that vision and like the word we use is spiritual maturity, right? That ability yeah. to let go without bitterness and with love and vision sign me up if I can ever get there. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's like enlightenment, right? I mean, those are the people, right? Because I mean, to be that, to see it as so much bigger than self, you know, like so much, I mean, that's so hard for most, I think for most of us, right? We're focused on what we can do, how we can contribute, what our role is. I mean, I know I'm speaking for myself, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right. Um, But to be like a wise elder, I would say, mm-hmm. an elder, soul elder, maybe, but also maybe sometimes elder in actual yeah. lived experience and be able to do that. That's quite profound, actually. Yeah. 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 I'm very moved by that, too. Always yeah. moved by that. I lo- <laughs> Choking I, I, up. <laughs> I love it so much. And, and I think partly why it resonates maybe for us is like, I think we live in a culture where the most important thing is a sense of choice or like agency mm-hmm. or freedom. Right. And these are people who have chosen commitment. And the kicker is that I'll never forget this. One of the one of the nuns said to me, but commitment equals freedom. Because mm. when you've made a choice, you're free. You, you know exactly what you're doing. You're free from all of these other distractions and temptations. And, you know, like there's there's a freedom in the commitment. And I think we're terrified of committing in that way. I mean, there's a congregation that I admire in Washington, D.C., where you have to commit to live in the DMV and in the D.C. area for the rest of your life. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so it's so intense, right? But there's <laughs> so intense. But it's it, it's this radical like I don't know there's something really life-giving in it for me even though it's terrifying. And we saw this in some of the how we gather research as well. You know, we were looking at fitness communities for example, right. and religious organizations, the progressive ones are very very afraid of asking big things of people because of the painful history, right? Of of exclusion and people not meeting the mark or certain standards and then being pushed out. And so th- the idea of having like these intense disciplines or commitments that are asked of you, it's very scary to do that in a religious context. But in these fitness contexts, it's celebrated and it's actually desired by by some of the people. They want to be held accountable to a higher standard because that helps them become the kind of person that they want to be. So in some ways, accountability in the in the fitness context is, is like an expression of care. Because if you said you want to be able to do 10 pull-ups by, you know, three months time. Right. And I'm I'm holding you to it. It means that you know that I care about you and the goals that you've set for yourself. So there's this really interesting relationship, I think, between accountability and commitment and freedom and choice in the kind of cultural context that we're in. Oof. <laughs> so I'm just taking it in because I'm just thinking I've been to CrossFit and I went one time because oh of that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> so intense. Time. I was like, this is not, not nope. going to work for me. Um, me too. But... 
good on you. Right. Um, and it does work because it did feel like a religious experience for people that were there. Like it was their spiritual community for real. And I don't know, so much has changed since how we gather. I don't know if you feel that way. I'm just saying anecdotally, I haven't done the research, but I would say from my experience, even from me being in rabbinical school all those years ago, like what was expected of me then to what, mm. to me even having this podcast today, while certainly is like out of the bounds, like there's no question, but it's not so far out of the bounds in the yeah. way that like if I had done it then, it would have been like, what are you doing? Like yeah. you're actually breaking with our tradition. It's a little bit like that. People aren't liking this so far, but it's not it's not like they're not loving like I'm not being the good Jewish girl that I'm supposed to be. Right. But like they're like, oh, but she's seeking and she's she's, she's figuring, figuring it out. It out. It's yeah. OK. It's OK. She'll be OK. You know, so I think there's like that element. Yeah. Well, I, I will say, you know, having worked with a lot of Jewish institutions, I really admire the institutional, huh, maybe I just figured out a new word, institutional, um, <laughs> institutional Jewish world actually has a lot more willingness to try things, to innovate than I, than I think the Christian one does. And, you know, there's a painful history, I think, that helps explain that. But nonetheless, it's been exciting to see how much vision and creativity and frankly, also investment there is within the Jewish context into new ideas, which is sorely lacking elsewhere. And so I think that there are more people who love what you're doing than you think. And maybe that maybe they don't know about it yet, but they will do. But but there's a broader point that you're asking about how much has changed even in the eight years since, you know, I think How We Gather came out. And it is such a fast moving space. Like if I think about the rise of like astrology and tarot into the mainstream is one example. Um, you know, yeah. kind of. You know, we... I used to hi I used to hide all that stuff under my bed. Yes. People don't believe me. I'm like, I literally was like, don't look at this. And now it's just fine. It's like you don't do it. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> What's your sign? Yeah, exactly. Like they're asking. They're asking. Like in in like academic institutions, they're walking around. Say your name, your pronoun, and, and your, your sign. sign. Like, yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah. To no, not at all. But it's a great <laughs> example, I think, of some of the kind of cultural shifts. But, you know, the thing that's maybe more, been more difficult to see is there have been so many beautiful projects and leaders who've created cool things, communities, organizations that lived for kind of three to five years and then died because there's so much burnout and there's so little support for spiritual leaders that don't fit the traditional box. And so one of the things I'm really passionate about is trying to figure out what does that support structure look like for, you know, to some extent, people like you and me who are trying to build projects that tend to people's souls, if I can use that language, or, you know, build community or help people make meaning or, you know, center ourselves on, on, on justice with that kind of spiritual grounding. And it's, it, it, it can be lonely work. And often it isn't, there isn't a 401k attached to that career path. And so, you, right. you know, it can be hard for people to sustain. And so there's a lot of interesting, and you'll know much more about this than I do, but, you know, within kind of traditional religious literature, you have stories like the exodus of, of a people leaving a place that wasn't good, but at least they knew what, what it was into this right. wilderness time. And like, it wasn't over in three weeks. It's a 40 year journey. And so you'll hear a lot of people talking about this time in terms of the kind of spiritual and religious landscape as this wilderness time of uncertainty. Yeah. And in fact, maybe it's impossible to build something that is really uh, long lasting right now. And, and it is just a time of fluidity. Yeah. 
I think that sounds right. It feels wildernessy. It feels wild. It feels ex- in the in the way that wilderness can feel exciting and un- the unknown. It's untenable, and it and it and I think that the burnout is for spiritual leaders, but even for all of us seeking, right? Like we'll try something, and we're like, oh, that works for us for however long, x amount of months right. or years. Right. And then wait, actually, I'm I've grown, I've evolved. I actually want this thing. Yeah. And so, how do you sort of? Maybe the point isn't to build. Maybe it is to be like those nuns and to be like, actually, this is like beyond us. This is like we're committing to this creative, spiritual, innovative way of life, and that means that it will sort of like continue to like die. And be resurrect yeah. <laughs> and be born, rebirth, right? Like, I don't know. Rebirth is probably better than resurrect, but yeah, yeah. like that it'll continue on that path. But that is really challenging. It's a challenging for all of us, all of us, spiritual leaders, spiritual right. walkers seekers. of life, yeah. seekers. Like it's, it's not committed and grounded. And that feels for, for me, like I want to go back to what I was. I was someone yeah. super committed and super grounded in a very particular way and box, and I knew it and yeah. I loved it and I felt it, and I and I I still have it. It's still there, but I, that's it's not me. Meaning, it's it's like I've. I, I want to ask you about this, Tova. I want to ask you about this because I think this really gets to that question of the commitment freedom question. <sighs> It would never work for me either. Like if I look at what's on option, and partly that's about sexuality, right? That there's just some real, right. real clear boundaries where I'm not welcome. Um, but I love to travel. Like my family <laughs> is in Europe. My husband and I live in the US. I have friends on the so there's already a question about geography, uh, of like, but the people I love the most don't live where I live, is question mm. one. Question two is, I live in a spiritually diverse world where because of my work, because of my friendships, like I co-host, I've co-hosted Seders, you know, for Passover. Like I, I, I we host this big Christmas carol party. I uh, go on retreat at an Episcopal monastery. I have, you know, elements of Buddhist practice in my life. Like I do a texture bot, like my life doesn't fit in one tradition. The, the, the songs I know are in multiple languages. So I think you and I are maybe perhaps slightly differently, but we're comfortable in that diversity and we actually feel in some ways most ourselves. But the lives that at least I live, there is no institution that's going to match everything that I am. How could it? Like I'm, I'm a, right. and so is everyone else. It's a really interesting mix. Maybe you're a, a, a multi-faith household or a multi-language, multicultural household. No institution is going to hold it all. And so do you think it's possible to build communities of that commitment, just as seekers, not even as leaders, but just like, is it possible to build that kind of depth without a singular tradition, ritual, language, theology? And if not, what do we do? Yes. Great question. I should be asking you that question, but I'll answer and then you'll tell me your answer. I think it's possible. I don't know the exact ingredients as to how it is possible, but I think there's something. First of all, I think that it can't be large, that like the communities have to be small, which I know you're doing with the nearness and I do with my spiritual care circles. There's something when it's small it's definitely possible. It's like more than possible. In fact, I think it creates communities that are so alive that like, you can't even, you know, you feel like 
there's something like, wow, this actually exists. I'll say my children's school, I usually don't bring my kids into the podcast. You're bringing that out of me for some reason. But, you know, they go to a school, not a Waldorf school, but a progressive school. It's teeny. Intentionally, it won't grow. And it is incredibly diverse in all ways. And that diversity is celebrated, shared, contained in not a commercialized way. There's no like winter performance with every single yes. like song. <laughs> Right. Which has its merit. And sure. I and I and I appreciate. Yeah. But it's actually it's just like it's a winter performance of songs that the kids just like want to sing that has have nothing to do with that. But in their classroom, they're talking about where they come from and like what they stand for. And I think th- my kids are getting it. Mm-hmm. I see that they are getting that. And I and I get it a little bit as the parent that gets to go to the sings on Fridays, which are again, I think singing is a big Huge. part. And I know you do that too, yeah. right? Like singing is collective art forms, right? Yeah. Any art form, right? You just like get together and you do it 100%. together in your own way. Like that is the spiritual essence. I think it is possible. And I will say, I feel in this podcast, I'm, I don't want to be like, I hope it's not offensive, like coming out of the closet a little bit, yeah. I'll say, as someone that feels like a universal yeah. unity consciousness, like, yeah. I, I, I seek that for myself. And yet my like, my origin is still Jewish, Particular. like yeah. Jewish wisdom in particular, right? Yeah. So like, how do I how do I do that dance? And I'm learning that. Yeah. Do you think it's possible? Like, do you think it's possible to, have you seen it? Have you experienced it in the groups that you're leading? You do like song circles. What do you call them? Because I see them on Instagram. They look, (laughs) I really wish I lived in New York because I'd definitely come. They look very fun. Well, when you come visit, you'll you'll have to join us. Third Monday of the month. Um, I love what you pointed to in your answer. I want to pull out a couple of themes. One is the scale. I completely agree with you. I think as we envision spiritual communities of the future, I think relationality is just central. Like if you don't know the other people in the community and they don't know you, like it's just it's just not going to feel real. And so based on the amount of time we have, those groups need to be small. <laughs> like, And therefore, they're not going to be professionally led. You know, you're not going to have right. a rabbi or a minister who's on a full-time salary leading each of those small groups. It's just not going to happen. So I think it's also a time of like dispersed leadership and a sort of leaderful vision where, you know, people are getting together for a weekend or they're, you know, volunteering together once a month or they're singing together once a month. I think the creative arts are a huge way to get beyond our rational problem identifying brain. At least that's true for me. And so singing together is amazing because you can all sing together, even though you can't all talk at once. So like, it's, it's just a powerful spiritual technology that radically, it's like an efficient way of building connection. I hate to sound so rational about it, but like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's amazing that you sing three songs together and you feel like you can trust each other. Like it's nuts. Totally. And so, you know, small groups that are bound by a shared practice, whether it's service, whether it's creative, um, I, th- I think eating together, you know, like that's, that's what I think. Breaking this bread. Is breaking bread, right? This is why the Shabbat table or the Eucharist table, uh, you know, again, those two traditions in particular are familiar to me, but I think that's, that's exactly right. The final thing I'll, I'll say, and this is, you use this word contained. And for me, that is one of the big questions. It's like in a world of content and we both create content, which I hope is good. Um, <laughs> how do we create the containers in which people can engage that content? Because I think right, right now we're all just like, just streaming everything and it's just coming at us one thing after another. And what we need are the spaces where someone else just says like, 
let's take a deep breath together. <laughs> just be like, right. oh, I don't have to be in charge. I can just, I can just receive this and really pay attention to this and sustain my attention with something to actually feel what I feel or to think through something that's been bothering me or to, 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 to do the hard thing that I know I need to do, but I'm scared, right? Like we need those spaces where, where we're held. And I think that's why those small groups are so powerful as they, they give the container for us to actually do the things that we know we want to, and we should do writing letters to our, you know, our, our elected leaders, uh, calling, right. you know, totally. us, our, our aunt who's getting old and who, our uncle has died, you know, just like all the things that make us human and we know are right and good, but are just never at the top of the to-do list. And that, I think that's what spiritual community is going to look like in, in the future. And, you know, with, with the growing uh, reality of climate change, We've lived, many of us have lived in a world where we haven't needed each other. And I think that will change. And so those small groups will not just be ones of like mental and spiritual connection, but like I think increasingly physical support too. Ooh, that's damn. Sorry. <laughs> but I honestly, I think it's true. You're a Slytherin, yeah, right? Did you say am, that? Yeah. Am, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Which just means that we're, you know, strategic. <laughs> it's annoying because I'm like a Gryffindor mm-hmm. and I feel annoying about that because it's like, oh, of course you're a Gryffindor. Oh, you just want to be like Harry Potter. But like, I actually think that I am a Gryffindor. It's not just because totally. of that. But totally. No, I think you're I think you're so right, Casper. I feel that happening right now. Like we're all sort of I don't know if it's the beginning or the middle, yeah. <laughs> like where we are in this sort of new world being created and old world crumbling. Like, I'm not sure where we are on the trajectory of that with everything going on, but it feels so apparent that whatever will be built is going to be us relying on one another in ways that we, we haven't in a long time. Yeah. And we're going to need to. Like the COVID pods were an interesting. Yes. Like test balloon to this. I I can't remember who said this, but like, you know, the, the old world is always dying and the new world is always being born. Like both are true at the same time which feels very Jewish as a concept. So uh, <laughs> That's the most Jewish thing ever you could say, for sure. It's a both and all the time with 20,000 opinions. No one can decide on one thing. Why I love which this is tradition. why it's funny that so funny that Jews are a monolith in the so in the media well, right now. I'm like, have you ever met a Jew? Have you ever met a Jewish person that seriously. doesn't or family doesn't yeah. work? <laughs> so true. Yeah. Yeah. I keep asking you questions, but I'll I'll be quiet. <laughs> you I could see. I could see why you do it. What I wonder for you is do you does it excite you this new way of being and and creating ritual does it feel what does it feel like for you yeah i'll I'll start with the things that are hard and the first one is there are things that we're losing and i don't want to be blind to that you know i i mentioned nuns as one example but there are so many faithful people who do small things with great love and are never the headlines. And, and, you know, we make fun maybe of the kind of Midwestern casserole congregation stereotype, but like, there's a lot of good people Amazing really people. looking after each other. Right. And, and so those, and particularly if you look at how the people who are at the very edges of society, you know, living in poverty, who don't have access to transport, who, you know, don't have enough money to, to eat well or get adequate healthcare, like congregations and religious institutions provide an overwhelming percentage of 
like social services, which the state fails to do. And so that's, that's one real fear of mine is as we lose some of those, that institutional strength, people really will be hurt by that. You know, in Los Angeles, we have a very awful un, like house pro- pro- problem, like meaning like it is yeah. just like devastating and has grown exponentially, I'm sure, you know, nationwide, but particularly in Los Angeles. And they've been doing a lot of different, you know, building housing. It, it's been great. I mean, like incrementally, you know, hopefully, right? Lots of different services being provided by the state. But there were a couple of Christian leaders, pastors mm. who were like, I always give thanksgiving to these people that live here and there there's no one there's no one to give the thanksgiving to and there was this mo like this like it was a melancholic like on one hand wonderful Mm -hmm. right and on the other hand there was this like that was part of the that was part of the way Mm -hmm. that we we did it and uh, again Mm -hmm. not that i want anyone on the street but there's just something that is really shifting as the state is take you know is taking that and and I think I agree there I think that also Christian from my friends that who are reverends and pastors they're like trying to find their way in this moment too and certain rabbis as well that do gooder I don't know what the word is being a good Christian is just what comes to mind you know yeah. um, um my papa I come from my mom converted to Judaism and so yeah. I come from a really good Christian like my nice. papa was one of those nice. and like I just you know, that I don't know if it's being lost, but it's being shifted in this world that changes. I think that's really interesting. I also like I wanted to make sure I get this from you from going back a little bit as young Casper. Yeah. You had no religion. It was no I just want to make sure I understood that yeah. there was like no, no there was no formal formal religion. You just had Waldorf and you had your rituals in your household that your yeah. family sort of just which, leaned into. Well, which which were, of course, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, it's important to say Waldorf came from the kind of philosophy of Rudolf Steiner, who was a kind of philosopher who had a very interesting, his, his kind of theological project was, was bringing some Hinduism and like philosophy yes. into Christianity. So like Christianity is still the core story. So like there's Jesus and there's angels and there's, you know, Mary and all, all of these things are there. It's just they're done in a slightly different way. So he was kind of a spiritual innovator of his time some deeply problematic theology too. I don't want to be ignorant of that. But all of which is to say that, yes, we didn't go to church. We never talked about God at home. But at Advent, you know, there were little golden stars on a blue piece of felt in the in the hallway. And there were 24 stars and, you know, little Mary and Joseph and the donkey would move from one star to the next. So each day. So that, that was a Christian story embodied in, in the ritual. But it like, I never thought of Jesus as, like, God. <laughs> right. But I think what's so interesting is I think that's actually quite unique that you grew yeah. up with that yeah. way, and you're still in that, right? Like, you were kind of raised that way, and you're still in that. And I think for a lot of people, often they're raised with something, yeah. and then they find a way, right? But you have just sort of got you, – you loved it enough that you made it your life's mission, really, to do this work. That's true. I mean, I definitely wasn't engaged with it for a good decade in, in, in my teens and 20s. But, you know, that pattern of departure and return is so fascinatingly universal. Yeah. I was just in Japan on a research project interviewing a lot of Buddhist monks. And like this one guy who was really, you know, captured with his vision for uh, how, how he's leading Buddhist study and, and, and meditation, he had left 
Um, he was a conceptual artist. You know, he grew up vaguely Buddhist, but like was a conceptual artist. Was like, I want to leave this all behind. You know, screw like leave Japan behind, leave this art stuff behind. And he went to India and became like a wandering kind of like monk with these with these Hindu sadhus, like these kind of wandering teachers. And then after a while, he was like, huh, well, I guess I could learn more about Buddhism. And then returned home and became like this very practiced and, and gifted, gifted monk. So all of which is to say what I often think of as, a you know, people leaving their home faith, whether it's Christianity, Judaism, something else, maybe going to Buddhism and then coming back or like doing yoga and being like, oh, wait, there's Jewish yoga. Like, that's interesting. Um, it, that, that I think sometimes we need to encounter the holy in someone else's context to fall in love with it in our own and Mm. so i i definitely feel that's true in my life too where i'm like well you know these strange strains that i grew up with might not like add up to anything official but like they are real and that's worth something they are real and you can point to it a little bit for you because you can point to just when you were just sharing the king's college caroling yeah right and that universal picture of it totally. in the moment that you watched it. Yeah. But you can paint, like, you can go back, I'm sure, to your childhood of feeling the carols in the UK in a particular way. And somehow it shifted. You could see the little yeah. dots all coming together. And I think it's, people are so interesting. I mean, people's stories are so interesting. It's just always like, I mean, my story is like a little bit more like this. But most people, I think, leave and return and come yeah. back afresh and... And I think our, cool. our, our religious and spiritual language often doesn't do justice to that because we'll be like, well, I was born Presbyterian and like, I'm still Presbyterian kind of like, it, you know, even if you go into any congregation where people are really engaged, half the time people have had major like explorations or like they secretly do tarot or LSD or like, or, or they, you know, Mother Teresa didn't believe you know that god was real for many decades right right? like oh she didn't feel god's presence so like the 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 complexity that is hidden by some of the labels that we use i I think doesn't do doesn't do us justice which is why you know you pointed to the small group model before when we really get to hear each other and be up close enough to each other's lives and each other's stories it's such a self-compassion tool as well because we're like oh I thought you had it all figured it out. And like, it's not that you don't, but like we're in the same place, you know, we're, we're all, we're all figuring it out together. And for me, that turn from creedal communities where you all affirm the same beliefs to covenantal communities where you commit to being in relationship together for me is a huge opportunity. As we think about spiritual communities in the future, where we can love one another without believing the same thing. Like, that's that's that for me is the kind of core spiritual practice of this moment it's like how do we tend to our relationships how do we build units of belonging and and love each other not in spite of differences but because of them yeah so beautiful i meant to ask you how you define ritual can you do it in one sentence making the invisible visible Mm. i like that do you think it has to be repetitive or no I think you do from your book. I feel like I remember I, I that. I talk about intention, attention, and repetition as being the kind of key key things that you need. Yeah. I, I think that repetition doesn't have to be in one person's life, right? If you think about a wedding ceremony, like it's being repeated from one generation to the other, which makes it meaningful. Some people get married multiple times in a lifetime. Right. But so I, I do think trying to create something out of nothing and calling it a ritual, it often feels empty. And so 
composting or drawing on something that's come before, repositioning or reinterpreting, I, I think is always more effective in terms of what we hope ritual does for us. Yeah, for me, I create rituals with people all the time. And I always am like, okay, but like, let's use the elements, yes. like, wh- like something that is like, where can we tap into something that everyone in this circle that's going to be walking you through this moment can feel into? And that seems to be like my way, yeah. but, but that doesn't have to be like repetitive in the, it has to be this, right. Cause like we're all creative beings figuring totally. it out. Totally, And I think you have to leave space for mystery and wonder and perhaps God, like, if you're completely yeah. designing everything and in control of everything, I'm not sure it can be a ritual. That has to be, you know what I mean? I know. <laughs> oh, I do. I used to write down my rituals, like every detail, yeah. you know, like when I first started becoming a ritualist and doing it a lot. Yeah. And now I've gotten better at it, but it's also, I know that I need the bullet point. Yeah. Not because that's all paragraph. you need. Exactly. It's just the bullet point because yeah. whatever is going to happen is is actually the magic. Like yeah. that's why ritual is so amazing. Yeah. Okay, I have one last question. Great. Do you have a ritual that you return to that you find if you are lost, you know it's there? Well, I opened my book with this story, but if I'm feeling really down, I rewatch You've Got Mail with my favorite Hagen dazs <laughs> I forgot about that. I remember that. And it sounds silly, but I honestly, I'm passionate about helping people notice the rituals that they do have. So often we think about our kind of lives as being ritualless, And I actually think whether it's returning to a favorite song or like, you know, a, a favorite poem or a favorite book or a favorite movie, like those, those are powerful artifacts that help us feel something. And you've got mail connects me with this like longing and promise of a different life and some fulfillment of that promise. And so when I'm feeling like, I don't know, I, I, it's such a comfort and such a reminder of like, yeah, how it is right now was, is not how it's always going to be. Mm, I love that. You've got mail. I'm going to watch it this weekend. I'm not even joking. It's so good. Honestly, it really holds <laughs> up. There's one moment where you're like, mm, maybe not that bit, but Nora Ephron, freaking genius. Absolutely. G- genius. Yeah. She is. <laughs> Thank you so much, Casper. Thanks for I me. just am so grateful for your time and wisdom. I, you're just amazing. Well, right back at you and good luck with, with the podcast <laughs> and everything else that you're doing. Thank you. How much did you love that? I know. He's amazing. So charismatic, so charming, so fun. Okay, I forgot to do this. Please make sure to check out Casper in all the ways. He wrote an amazing book. It's called The Power of Ritual. I highly recommend it. He also does um, the audiobook version if you're interested in that. You can continue to follow him on Instagram at CasperTK with an underscore. His book, The Power of Ritual, I highly recommend. Um, check that out. His website is caspertk.com where you can sign up for his newsletter. And you can also check out his latest uh, project called The Nearness Coop. Check out that website and consider joining a workshop or joining a group for nearness. Such a treat to have Casper on. I just had a blast on that and I'm excited to leave you with ritual. I actually have two for you this week. The first is singing singing as a ritual. Casper talked about it. And if you follow him, you'll see that he does a lot of amazing singing rituals with people. What does it look like for you 
to sing with people. And I know that's very vulnerable. If you're someone that doesn't sing with people, if that's not your practice, that feels, how do I do that? Well, here's how you can do it. Truly. I did this once. It was really fun. You can gather a few people together that you feel comfortable and safe with, and you can pick a song that you think folks would know. And I think you could do it one of two ways. One way is actually to make it feel like a campfire of some kind, like super casual outside. Maybe it's inside and it's just, guys, let's just have fun. Let's play some music. You know, you play the song on your whatever player you use and sing along, right? You make it really low stakes. But see what it feels like to sing with people and maybe make it a low stakes thing, but in your head, know that you are creating a new ritual for yourself, that you're creating a space for people. Another way to do it, and I've done this before too, is actually to blindfold. Because sometimes what we feel is like a self-consciousness to singing in front of people. So somehow you maybe turn the lights off. You don't even have to blindfold, but you make sure that you can't really see one another and you sing a song together. And in that instance, I would recommend saying, putting the intention out to the people that are there. We're creating a song together. We're singing together to create a sacred space. And I bet you, if you feel into the space before you sing together and you feel into the space after you sing together, it's going to feel different. Okay, so that's ritual one. Ready for ritual two? You probably did New Year's resolutions. Uh, Or if you didn't, you did them in your head, right? We do them. It's a thing we do. Even if we don't realize we do, most of us do them in some way. My challenge to you is to actually light a candle, talk to a friend on the phone or in person, go through your resolutions now that it's been, you know, a few days into the new year, go through those resolutions and actually write your real New Year's resolutions. I do this every year. Write out what you actually think is gonna work for you for this year. By the way, I don't like resolutions. I don't think they're great, but I still do them every year. So if I still do them every year, let's do them in a way that works. And I think adding a candle to that, talking to a friend and saying, this is what I said, and this is actually what I think is possible. And then once you name like the three things that you think you are intending for this year legitimately that you believe is a possibility, I invite you each to reflect back to the other. So you say to your friend, my resolution is X, Y, and Z, and your friend reflects back, your resolution is X, Y, and Z. May it be so, and I see you. And then do the same for the friend. There's power that we have when we invite another into our lives, into witnessing us. And my hope is by taking something that feels, I don't want to say ordinary, but feels it's ritualistic in a particular way, but like taking that ritual and like adding more intention to it perhaps will allow for the ritual to feel different this year and to maybe even be more alive for you. All right. We'll be back next week. Sending love. Thank you for listening to the Ritual House podcast. Please be sure to follow the show on whichever platform you are listening to this right now so that you'll never miss an episode. And as we grow the show, we want to hear about the rituals that are meaningful to you. 
We invite you to share your ritual practices with us. You can DM us at theritual.house on Instagram or find us on our website, www.theritual.house. Also, as a new show, your feedback is really important to us. Please head on over to Apple Podcasts and write us a review. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend? We'll see you back here next week to continue the ritual revolution. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a week filled with intention and attention. Take good care.